This is the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. 1037 The Game's exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Making his way to the podcasting ring. Hailing from the heart of Cajun country. It's me. It's me. It's the world famous CD. Let's ring the bell and get this party started off right. And welcome everyone to Cajun Strong Style 1037 The Game's exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Hopefully you're having a great one on this WrestleMania Saturday at the time we're taping this bad boy. And man, oh man, looking forward to night one of Mania. And of course, you, that is highlighted by the main event of Sasha Banks, Bianca Belair. We talked about it a while back, about whether or not this should be the main event. And honestly, I think it definitely deserves to be in that conversation. So for me, I'm going to waste a little time. You know, I want to get into NXT, TakeOver, Stand and Deliver, Night Numero Dos, which, honestly, I felt like for the most part, it was fine. It just never necessarily delivered on the high level from the last show they had, which was absolutely amazing from start to finish. This felt like it had moments where it could have been five-star, if not better, type of event, or five links of Boudin. As you know, we've unveiled a brand-new star rating system. It's called the Boudin Ratings, and it's basically a lot like Dave Meltzer's star ratings, but obviously with a little bit of Cajun flair to it. So we get into the show. Start off with Santos Escobar versus Jordan Devlin, a ladder match to unify the Cruiserweight Championships. The fact that he did this is amazing. And this wasn't the crazy, cool, like, X-Division-esque high-spot match that I've always talked about as being a really solid opener. But it was more along the lines of just a full-blown war. So damn cool to see everything go from start to finish, the bumps and the, and the spots. And it wasn't all about, you know, oh, hey, we're going to go ahead and put all these guys in the ring and it's be nothing but an absolute war between all parties involved. This was really well done and, and booked out. It was reminiscent, and a big reason why I feel like it was reminiscent of it was the fact that this felt like you know the Razor Ramon Shawn Michaels match at certain points. It wasn't you know let's go ahead and have the, all these car crash spots. You had some really great high spots, like a two thirds way up on the ladder Spanish fly. But at the end of the day, it's not as cool as like let's say you know you have these spots where the ladders up against the barricade, and you have, you know, let's say Jeff Hardy hit a leg drop on somebody off the top of the ladder. That's a little bit different. Or, or like a table spot. You didn't have all this crazy crap happen. It was largely kept within the two just going at it. And this was a really fun match. Of course, you got Royal Mendoza, Joaquin Wild, put it together. And this was a big question I got from our guy who was on the podcast on, I can't remember what day it was now, it was Wednesday. We had Long Island Ice-T join the program. The artist formerly known as Alan Michael, the Alan Michael Show, he joined the program to talk about this match. And he, t- he hit me up. He's like, what's the rating that you give for this match? It was Santos Escobar winning the Cruiserweight title. It made the most sense to me. I was definitely felt like they were going to do that route, build some prestige. Because the whole Jordan Devlin thing, there's a little bit of dirty laundry with him, if you know well enough. That's kind of a big reason why I was leaning more towards him losing this match and Santos Escobar unifying the title. So for me... It's got to be a, I'd say this is a four Boudin match, if not, let's say, four and a quarter Link of Boudin type match. It's really good. Just so, I, I felt like you could have had a little bit more time, but at the end of the day, really solid stuff here. And then we get to the Women's Tag Team Championship match. Still not a fan of it, but at the end of the day, it is what it is. Shotzi Blackheart, Ember Moon squaring off and defending their titles against Candice LeRae and Indy Hartwell. Didn't get the formal intro in the first match. This one got a formal int- ring introduction, which I like that. 
and a really solid match throughout, really good storytelling. In fact, you had, I absolutely loved it, Ember Moon paying homage to Road Dog with a with a shake, rattle, and roll type movie that hit, hit the crotch top just so damn. It was, and wait, Candice already sold it. Like, she just absolutely fell down. Like, she got knocked. It was like the knockout punch and sold it like it was death. Really loved that stuff. But a really just solid match. Right about the time that I would want it to be, about a 10-minute match, and Shotzi Blackheart and Ember Moon do retain here. I'm kind of going rapid fire here because I've got a lot of thoughts about our special retro review I'll get to in just a few moments. But really good stuff here, really good second match. For me, this is going to be about a three-and-a-half Link of Boudin type match. I wish I could give it more, but again, it's only a 10-minute match. Can't take a whole heck of a lot away from it. Then they show Gable Stevens, an NCAA champion wrestler from Minnesota, so it, he can definitely say the suggestion is that he's going to be the next big guy in NXT alongside a guy like Parker Boudreaux, which, honestly, I would love. Gable Stevenson is a guy that you're going to have to watch, I think, over the next couple of years because if he's with NXT and he starts to really build himself up, I guarantee you he's going to be a guy to keep an eye on. And then we get to Bronson Reed. Johnny Gargano for the NXT North American Championship was definitely surprised about you know, the fact we got Bronson Reed, but I like the match that he had in that kind of pseudo gauntlet eliminator. It's, I, I wish they would change that name because it feels like if you have gauntlet and eliminate, it's like, it reminds me of the eliminator tournament that w, AEW did a while back. Come up with a different name for it, but really cool stuff here. You know, Gargano just starting off as, as kind of the chicken bleep heel in this match, not wanting to get hit. And they had some really cool spots. In fact, like whenever Gargano's doing his like dance, all of a sudden, you know, you have Johnny Gargano doing his little little hip swivel, I guess. Then Bronson Reed is just staring at him right there. It's like, oh no, what the hell? It's like that that popped me, I'm not gonna lie. It's really good. Then they just kinda like had really good back and forth throughout the match. Gargano tried to hit, get their Gargano to escape, but he couldn't get anything going. All of a sudden, at one point in the match, Reed countered the one final beat and threw him back into the ring with the razor's edge from the outside. That was so damn cool. Reed tried the tsunami but missed. Gargano hit the super kick for two. And then all of a sudden, you know, Reed is trying to lift Gargano, but his ribs are hurting at this point in time. He can just tell it's affecting him. And Reed wound up going for a moonsault and missed. Gargano hit the one final beat twice, finishing the match. He retains in 16-22. This is, I'd say, a three and a three-quarter length of Budan, link of Budan match. That's how much I liked it. But I felt like, you know, there just wasn't as much heat to this one. Again, it's just kind of the downside of having to book a match like you did. But, you know, again, he cheated a few times, and it makes sense considering the story, and you get to see him be a heel. And I'm looking forward to seeing maybe a little bit more of a Bronson Reed chase. Because I mentioned this with our guy, Harry Broadhurst, earlier in the week is the fact that I don't think, you know, Dexter Loomis needs a title run. I feel like he could be a guy that's a good chase for him. He has a good chase, but he never is going to quite win it. Same thing with Reed, but I feel like Reed is more apropos for being a North American champion in the next, I'd say, three to four months if he's able to kind of build up and stack up a lot more wins. Because he, he started and finished for a hot minute. He was there, and then he left, and then he's been repackaged, and the repackage they have for him is really good. It's a lot more serious. It's not the thick boy, Bronson Reed. It's a different type of breed. So give him some time. I think he could be in the next like three to four months a North American champion 
that becomes a lot bigger of a deal. Let's get to the penultimate match of the night. And this was surprising, I think, to a lot of people. But it made sense to me that you put Adam Cole, Kyle O'Reilly, the unsanctioned match, as the main event. They did the same thing at TakeOver New Orleans. But it's Finn Balor defending the title against Karrion Cross, And it's incredible to see like some of the stats they brought up. In fact, you know, Finn being 14-1 and at TakeOver's all-time. And this was a hard-hitting match all the way through. So many cool spots. I mean, the Pele kicks, coup de gras, and that one I'm getting kicked out by Karrion Cross for two. So damn good all the way around. And I was surprised, but then I'm like, you know what? It's okay. I can live with this. Cross winning the match after hitting a forearm to the back of the head. Basically, it's almost like the hidden blade that you see Will Ospreay do to a certain extent. Really good stuff here from start to finish. Karen Cross gets the win, 17-06. I think this one is going to be a three-link three of Boudin type match for me. I liked some of the stuff they had here, but it just it didn't pop as much as some other matches that I've seen WWE do for the NXT title. Like, like the Kyle O'Reilly stuff and the Pete Dunne matches, those are bangers. This felt like it, it was lesser. It was a much less match than what I wanted. But now we're going to see the main event of the night. Kyle O'Reilly, Adam Cole, unsanctioned match. And my God, this was the match of the night. And I, I'm wanting to make this an official segment going forward. And that is the match of the week. This gets the honors this week because it was so damn good. Even I mean, this is all before WrestleMania even happens, people. But this was my match of the week. No doubt in my mind for this podcast, this is the one. Because you had so many... Just hard hit. It was hard hitting, and you know you got to see a lot of really just scary looking spots. In fact, you know they threw it. I mean, you had so many different spots, like whip into the plexiglass, started just to throw people, throw people around. All of a sudden, you crash through the stage. So I wish Mauro Ranallo for one night only had made an appearance for this takeover for this match, because that would have been just so much more kick ass. But again, just so much going back and forth. This match went over like. Over a half hour, I was blown away by that. 40 minutes and 18 seconds, the longest match by far on TakeOver, the two nights. And the finish was so nuts because O'Reilly went to a corner, draped some chain, and placed the chair on Cole's leg, basically about to pelmanize his ass. And then O'Reilly went up the corner with the chains, and Cole hit him with a chair to dump him. And Cole put the chair on the floor in an awkward position, went up the ropes, and jotted O'Reilly, who eventually hit him with a low blow. Really good stuff there. O'Reilly all of a sudden wrapped the chain around his own right leg as he's Basically going to get up on the turnbuckle, drop the knee from the top through the chair to win the match. So damn good. And this was exactly what you needed to have happen. And Kyle O'Reilly getting over. And he needed to win this match. I've said this from Jump Street. Like Kyle O'Reilly definitely needs to win the first part of this chapter. Because this is going to be a several month long story. You didn't have really anybody else. And you didn't have Strong pop up on the card. You didn't have Bobby Fish. It was something I kind of, I was hoping maybe would have happened. But it didn't. So now you can start adding more and more layers to the story to where potentially you could have a tag team match of the Undisputed Era implodes upon itself where you've got Kyle Riley, Bobby Fish, Roderick Strong, and Adam Cole. Like Who knows how that's going to work, but if you're able to build this storyline, that could be a match that happens, like, let's say, SummerSlam or Survivor Series weekend, and that's kind of your big blow-off. I think they're, they're, they're building towards something even better here in 2021. And I would love for that to be kind of the main, one of the big main events 
of the first NXT show that's able to get out of the Capitol Wrestling Center or the Performance Center or whatever, Full Sail, whatever it is, the first show with like a full house of fans, like let's say at SummerSlam. If they do, a, if, they, if SummerSlam is actually able to be a thing, I would love for this to be part of NXT TakeOver Weekend as a semi-main event because I think the main event needs to be an NXT title match for this one. Yes, I said give me a blood feud as a main event anytime, but I think you already blew your wad on that in a sense. If you can't have the NXT title or something else on the line here, like if it's a loser leaves town type of situation, hell yeah, make it the main event. But you have to really ramp it up even more so. The unsanctioned match absolutely crushed it. And it was a 40-minute just battle. Overall, I felt like, you know, outside the main event, a lot of it just it fell flat because it felt like they just said, hey, go ahead and put on like a good 15, 20-minute match. That way we can give as much time as possible to the main event. Whenever you could have probably said, hey, let's go ahead and go along with the main event and let's give these guys plenty of time to breathe with the matches and give them plenty of like, give them like all a 20-minute match. Because it, it just felt like at certain points, like a, a, um, that's a WrestleMania caliber ladder match that started off the show that probably could have gone on five extra minutes. You had a NXT title match only went 17 minutes. It's very unusual to see that. Karrion Cross definitely dominated there. I'm glad he won the title because I think he definitely, but he doesn't necessarily need it. It's not, I, I get it though, because the fact that he lost, he never lost the title. And it was the plan that he would get it back after his injury, but, you know, I just don't get. I just don't feel like it's going to be great. And you know, Cross isn't necessarily going to be wrestling at the same level we've seen Finn Balor, Adam Cole, Johnny Gargano, all those guys kind of carry that title to a certain prestigiousness. He's going to bring it down a little bit in terms of the quality. If you love match quality, Karen Cross as champion is not for you. If you love storytelling and you love kind of the the pairing of Scarlett Bordeaux and Karen Cross, this is for you. Honestly. I have no real true hard take on it. But overall, I'd say, you know, Kyle Riley, Adam Cole, that gets five links of Budan for me. And then I'm going to go with the overall show. It's about a four links of Budan type thing. Go watch it. Probably mainly watch the main event between Kyle Riley, Adam Cole, and I'd say the opener. Those are the two things I'd say outright go watch because they're that good. Everything else kind of just, it. I hate to say it, it wasn't, like a takeover for me. You could have probably just said, hey, let's go ahead and have like one hell of a last ride on WWE NXT. And then you put the women's title match. You put the, I'm trying to think of the, the tag team title match. You could have that replace at least one of those things that you had in there and put that, like, let's say I would swap out Gargano, Gargano, Bronson Reed. I would have swapped that out and put that in on NXT TakeOver on the NXT Night One and had that on, had the, women's title match or the tag team title match on night two because it just there was something about it that fell flat at least to me and i don't know what it was all right let's go ahead and get into the retro review the final wcw nitro of all time 20 years later and something I like to do when i do these i love to do research for these retro episodes and holy hell there's a lot to unpack here and i'll give credit to two people. I'll give credit to Uncle Dave, Dave Meltzer of Wrestling Observer Newsletter, as well as DA Price or Da Price82 on Reddit. He puts us out on Squared Circle on the regular, like these flashbacks. And the stuff that he has is insane just to look back at and see how 
everything happened around that time frame. Because again, you know, you got to go back to 2001. The internet wasn't as much like a resource, especially here. At least I didn't have the internet till like I was probably 13 or 14 years old at my house. And we only got it because we absolutely needed it to be able to complete some projects for school, which again, it's a little bit of a different time. And it starts with a memo by then Turner President Brad Siegel on March 16th saying, quote, in early January, we told you about an agreement that we had reached to sell WCW and its related assets. At that time, we said that we were apprise you of any changes to the way WCW operates. Effective Tuesday, March 27, WCW programming will begin a period of hiatus. And during this hiatus, WCW will review its programming plans and determine the future course of these WCW branded entertainment events. And on Wednesday, March 28th, please plan to attend an all-staff meeting at 10 a.m. at the power plant. Wow, that, that brings me back to hearing about the WCW power plant. At which time, we will share with you further information regarding plans with WCW. In the meantime, I hope that you will maintain the level of professionalism that distinguishes our organization as we prepare for the upcoming Panama City, Florida event. Thank you, end quote. That memo did not age well at all. TBS, in fact, announced they were no longer going to air wrestling on its stations after 29 years. 20 years later, that's still true, at least with TBS. And what's left of the company is expected to be purchased by WWF in the next two weeks. And the Jamie Kellner, the CEO of Turner Broadcasting, basically said, you know, and according to Uncle Dave, he said that he has always disliked pro wrestling in terms of Jamie Kellner, made the decision to cancel all pro wrestling programming on their networks, and this officially killed the Fusion Sale Talks. If TNT was still around, this whole plan of the reboot would have actually happened. Jamie Kellner was a big reason why that kind of came to an end, and the Fusion Media sales talks just fell through immediately because Fusion wasn't going to buy a wrestling company without a TV network to air on. This is very similar. I've heard Stone Cold on Stone Cold's podcast back when he used to do those rather than the Broken Skull sessions. So he did an interview with Paul Heyman, and he talked about how, in terms of ECW, the final days, one of the most profitable years he had was the year 2000. But the fact he's having to pay off pay-per-view giants like In Demand and not able to have a TV station to air their overall product to make a profit off of, that's why ECW died out. It was because of the fact that the TNN deal fell through that that ended once the WWF came over to TNN and then Spike TV. And basically you weren't able to get somebody to latch on because wrestling was starting to fade out a little bit amongst the mainstream television. I mean, there was a rumor, I mean, he mentioned that there was an idea for a Fox block, a Fox sports block, where it'd be like on Friday afternoons or like Saturday nights, and it'd be probably a lot like what we'd see eventually a year later, Impact Wrestling would be, no, it was two years later, sorry, but in 2003, whenever they launched Impact Wrestling on Fox Sports, and that was a highlight of my like like early high school years, because that was like 2003 to 2004, a year straight where I'd be sitting would get home a little after three, watch Impact. That'd be my start to my week, and then, yeah, Friday night, SmackDown, like, right after that. Anyways, really good stuff with the Fox Sports era. The Fox Box kicked ass, by the way. But following the cancellation decision, Fusion made a last-ditch effort to try and secure a TV deal with Fox, but after two days of meeting with them, they couldn't come to a deal. At that point, Fusion backed out of the sale, clearing the path to make the WWF purchase the corpse, and it was a dirt-cheap price. And then, of course, there's also something that Dave Meltzer mentioned that I didn't know about, that Jerry Jarrett made a proposal in an attempt to buy WCW, although it was never really considered and it was not very likely to happen. And Jarrett pulled his offer when they found out the TV show was canceled as well. 
And then a year later, we got NWA TNA slash TNA slash Impact slash Global Force Wrestling slash Impact again. God, that brand has just changed so much. But I, I'm loving the fact they're going back to Thursday nights. I'll just go ahead and leave it there. Because I'm not going to get to too much about Impact Wrestling, at least for now. Closer to Rebellion, I'm definitely going to talk about that. But none of the wrestlers were told anything at the pay-per-view or the March 19th tapings. In fact, none of them were even told that the TV show had been canceled, although the decision had already been made and many people already knew what was going on. On the March 19th Nitro, they announced next week's show would be the final show of the season, but no explanation or acknowledgement that the show was even canceled was mentioned, although media had started reporting. I don't remember even seeing anything about that. Maybe that was just more in the trades. And even when the rumors started going around, many believed it was just a work because you have Bischoff and Russo, they work in the boys, Nobody trusted WCW's management or believes anything anymore, which, honestly, it's a really good take on their part. And, of course, you know, Russo did not kill WCW. It kind of spread the process up, if you will, because I think they were going to die off anyways, especially after the AOL Time Warner merger. That was kind of one of those first steps. Now, yes, I think there could have been a chance it would have survived maybe another six months to a couple more years, if not for the AOL Time Warner deal kind of, put kibosh on wrestling and you have Jamie Kellner being behind the scenes. But I feel like there was a chance where eventually you're just going to realize it's time to cut your losses. And WCW was in the doldrums. Like there were, the, the Monday Night Wars were over. Vince had already won by, by this point. Like I'd say probably mid mid year of that. Like let's say June, 2000, that's whenever things started to really get downward. Once Hogan was done with WCW, that's when everybody kind of largely washed their hands of the product, at least to me. Then we get to you know a really cool note from the April 1st Observer saying that last year WCW was on the market to be sold for $800 million, and there was never even consideration that they could lose their TV deal. At the same time, WWF was securing a huge TV deal with Viacom, and there were more TV networks that wanted wrestling than there was wrestling. Again, that's what I was talking about, the choke point. Nobody was wanting it within like a year. WCW Infusion couldn't find another network that could carry it. Apparently, FX was rumored, but it never could happen. ECW, mentioned earlier, kicked off TNN, couldn't find another network. I think that's just more the fact that they were there. And the bloom is off the rose when it comes to wrestling. And TV networks are no longer interested as they were a year ago. So now, not only is that WCW and ECW are now dead, that means it's going to be much harder for any new company to come along and fill that void on a national level. Bottom line, according to Meltzer, he says that one man now has a monopoly on American professional wrestling. That's bad for the business as a whole. I agree with that. As for WCW airing as a separate brand on TV, that's the ultimate plan, Meltzer goes on to say. But they now have a TV deal to get their own new WCW show. WWF and TNN had discussed it, but have been able to come up with an agreement for a good time slot. As of now, the new weekly show will air on TNN on Saturdays from 11 to 1 a.m. 11 p.m. to 1 a.m., which would be really cool, but not ideal. No start date set as of yet, but at the final night, Shane McMahon told wrestlers they would hope to be on air within six to eight weeks. Woof. Dave thinks he could have scrapped some heat and put WCW in that time slot. So this is prime time on MTV, and it's not like heat is that important anyway. I'd agree with that statement. I would have loved to have seen that, but, you know, that just wasn't the plan, and people soured on it real quick, especially in June. Maybe we'll do some invasion shows, kind of recapping all that happened there, because that was... An interesting time for somebody like me who grew up watching this stuff on the reg. But there are no plans for this. You know, again, no plans for house shows or pay-per-views under the WCW name as of yet. But if slash when they're able to rebuild WCW enough, that would eventually be the plan. 
and no plans for stars to appear on WWF TV for now because they want to keep them separate. Although he ex- Dave expects some stars to quote unquote jump ship to WCW, but he's worried that the WWF guys would immediately become kind of the top guys, thus making the existing WCW talent look a little bit like the B team. And of course, once WCW is rebuilt, this would ultimately lead to a WCW versus WWF angle. And I, I and that's what we got. And it was just the, the exact emphasis on that. But without further ado, let's get into WCW Nitro, and it opens with the awesome WCW logo, the end of the WCW Road. That was a phenomenal logo, and I wish they would have used that in the actual invasion angle, because that was some damn good stuff. And it starts off, Vince McMahon is front of the Raw is War interview set, cuts a great promo, and we'll let you hear that right now. Here I am on WCW television. How can that happen? Well, there's only one way. You see, it was just a matter of time before I, Vince McMahon, bought my competition. That's right. I own WCW. So therefore, in its final broadcast tonight on TNT, I have the opportunity to address you, the WCW fans. I have an opportunity to address... You, the WCW superstars, what is the fate of WCW? Well, tonight, in a special simulcast, you'll all find out. Because the fate, the very fate of WCW is in my hands. Did we get the Nitro intro, which is just weird to watch? Tony Schiavone, Scott Hudson set the table. They're in a state of complete shock right now about the WCW being the final Nitro of all time. It's Night of Champions, as well as Spring Breakout 2001. And it was an insanely cool crowd for a final show like this. It was like a, it was like a funeral, but an Irish wake at the same time, which is also kind of cool in and of itself. Starts off Ric Flair, and it's so weird to see like short-haired Rick after years of him. Like when you watch old WCW promos. Like the NWA days, he's got the the flowing locks, and you see him in WWE where he's got the slick back hair. He's getting older, doesn't have as much hair, but seeing short haired Rick, early two thousand spiked hair Rick, was weird. And he's cutting a promo, and it's cutting a really good one. Starts just going nuts. And again, this was the best part about Rick in like the nineties and two thousands. There was no like zero to sixty. It was just immediately hundred miles an hour, going crazy and nuts. Start shooting prom, start pulling off a shoot promo saying that Vince Sr. was on the committee for the NWA and he awarded him the title. He starts going to full promo mode, starts writing off his classic catchphrases, mentions Vince can't control them. Would have loved if they used this in the genesis of the invasion angle. You can't control us. I would have loved to have Ric Flair there. We'll get to some of the stuff that happened with some of the guys that were on this Nitro because I actually pulled up like a lot of stuff about some of the guys that were featured in the final. Monday Nitro, and you'd be surprised. I'm, I'm I'm slightly surprised. I'll say that just about what the, happened to these guys in the year span. I'll just go ahead and put it that way. Promo ends with Flair calling out Sting for one more match on the final Nitro of all time. Crowd's going nuts. Fans hold up signs calling Vince a dumbass, and I honestly just kind of miss this stuff now since we don't have fans in the stands these days. At least we'll get some this weekend, which would be great. By the way, can't wait for WrestleMania in just a few short hours from the time we're taping this. 
Then we get to a quick little Slim Jim commercial, which is weird that the network kept these, but okay. Really good stuff here. Not the greatest the peak Randy Savage promos from like the OG Slim Jim era, but damn if that wasn't entertaining. But we open up the first match of the night, WCW United States title versus the WCW World Heavyweight title. Booker T versus Scott Steiner. No champion versus champion graphics, so they just rolled both the title match graphics back-to-back. So that kind of made me laugh, but again, really showed how much WCW and TNT just did not give to you-know-what about the product. Steiner comes out, reigning WCW champion, and Booker T's out with the U.S. title. And it was weird. They had no close-up on Booker's entrance. It was just one static shock, static shot of the Tron early on. Booker took control early with the sidekick, but Steiner starts overpowering Book. Steiner counters the 10 punches with a really cool powerbomb before throwing Booker out of the ring. But Deja gets in a nice slap on Booker, and Steiner comes close to hitting him in the head with a lead pipe, but Booker moves out of the way at the last possible second. I don't know why Tony called it the ghetto blaster, the axe kick. It's like, no, that's the that's the scissor kick. Like, why are you calling it different? I think he's never called that. I was like, what the hell's going on? Then all of a sudden, Steiner tries to hit, finish off Booker. He counters out of a suplex, hits the book in to win the match, and become the final WCW champion in the original lineage. And these, I'll just say this. We go to commercial, come back, and they show these 1-800-COLLECT. Again, that is dating itself already. But this was like, they had a spring breakout promo. Like They aired a couple times. And this reminded me so much of the old, like, Girls Gone Wild commercials. Because, like, 100 collect, woo! Like, it's that kind of stuff. That, it reminded me of the stuff that used to air on, like, Comedy Central late at night. If you remember that stuff back in the day, you're probably about my age. And, honestly, those are really cool. So we go to Vince McMahon, who's trashing WCW for having their final show at some redneck party at the Florida Panhandle, which I actually laughed at that when I watched it. So, again, so many cool things happen in this show. And also, yeah, Vince on the phone. It was a landline phone with, like, the old, which I think the phone cord. So it's like, it wasn't one of those, like, wireless phones that we see nowadays. And mind you, it's more cell phones now. But it was like, why is Vince using, like, a landline? It was a little strange. So we get to Young Dragons versus Three Count versus Rey Mysterio and Billy Kim in a triple threat match for the number one contenderships for the WCW Cruiserweight Tag Team titles. And I hated the fact they dubbed over the Three Count theme because the old one, like, get up on your feet. So damn good, but we didn't get that. We got the crappy version of it, and that was a underwhelming a lot. Then we get to a really solid match. He's again, this is like just second gear right away. Everyone starts doing high spots to the outside. Tony called one of the moves off the top rope, a spinning twisty, which I laughed my ass off at. Then at one point, Kidman finishes off a great sequence. Everybody's diving to the outside, hits a shooting star press. I mean, it's probably one of the best ones he's ever done. That's saying something. He was always like doing the shooting star press. It was never great, but it still looked pretty damn cool. Billy Kidman saved the day for his team throughout the match, kept him alive. Ray Mysterio gets kicked in the balls after going for the Bronco Buster. Mysterio eventually wins it after a top rope leg drop. Almost lost balance when he did the springboard. And just but he got it done. So at the end of the day, they'll face off against Primetime Elix Skipper and Kid Romeo for the WCW Cruiserweight Championship. And then Trish shows up in Vince's office. With a little champagne, Vince wants to get a little satisfaction instead of popping the champagne. Then obviously you hear a clearly post-production like pop of the bottle whenever the bottle's like nowhere near the end. I laughed at that. Then we get to Chava Guerrero Jr. for the WCW Cruiserweight Championship taking on Sugar Shane Helms. 
And I forgot that you know, he had his own entourage of female dancers, did Shane Helms. I laugh at that. Shafani and Hudson put over how important the Cruiserweights were to the company, how much great talent had been showcased by the company over the years. Booker T, another example of that. Really solid match here between these two. And Shane Helms won the match with the vertebraker. I had not seen this move in a long time. I remember seeing like Homicide hit that a lot back in TNA, hitting the vertebraker, as he called it, the cop killer. And Chavo took that like absolutely right, maybe went still. But the way he took it, it wasn't like a huge, like horrible bump, but it still like it looked like it hurt like a you know what. So yeah, that was really cool stuff. Then we get to WCW World Tag Team Championships. Sean O'Hare and Chuck Palumbo versus Lance Storm and Mike Awesome. Oh my god. First off, let me just say all four of these guys, I think with the except maybe Mike Awesome was one I just didn't really care all that much about. But this was why I loved WCW late, late WCW when I grew up. Because it was a train wreck and ruined by backstage politics, but like guys like Chuck Palumbo, Sean Stasiak, Sean O'Hare, Lance Storm, they had so cool like matches and moves. And I, I can remember Lance Storm when he debuted in WCW. Never seen a look at ECW like when I was growing up because it was a lot more like violent. And honestly, I didn't know what, what, when it was airing or what. But my God, Lance Storm's initial run we won like three titles like back to back to back that was awesome really never seen anything like that before that's that okay match story of the show pretty much Shantan bomb is absolutely a fantastic finish bio hair he gets the win and just a, again really solid match jeff hardy's was always been superior but the thing you have a big man like o'hare took it to another level may have been a big reason why i liked him but more importantly the fact he was able to do that kind of stuff it's impressive as hell you, you can't Knock that. Then we get to Bam Bam Bigelow versus Sean Stasiak, who is at who has at ringside with him, Stacy Keebler, and she cuts a pre-match promo. And like I don't know what this guy was throwing. There was a person that went up throwing something in the general direction of Stacy and knocked the glasses out of her hand. I don't know if it was a drink or something else, but the howitzer on the arm and the accuracy, ten out of ten. This dude should be a quarterback in the NFL. Really good stuff here. And it was probably the most pointless match ever. Bam Bam came out with a tattoo box, overbooked mess really quick. Sean came away with the win after a neck breaker. Overall, just it was okay. DDP cuts a promo at spring break thanking the fans for helping make DDP the big name that he is. And definitely needs to give them a lot of credit because, my God, he was amazing. I remember just loving DDP's gimmick in WCW, TNA even. He was pretty good. We'll get to WWE in a little bit. Then William Regal takes a dump on the corpse that is WCW while talking with Vince. Then Tony Giovanni just basically shoots on William Regal, Regal during Kid Romeo's entrance, which makes you think that no, that at this point they're like, we don't care. Just get us a Sting Flare. And again, watching this on the network, this is the last thing I watched on the network before it went away. And they cut away to a lot of different stuff. They just basically like, okay, we're done with this. We're moving on to the next thing. It's like very much like two or three seconds, not, a, not an ounce to breathe. Relatively quick contest. Kidman and Mysterio are final. WCW Cruiserweight Tag Team Champions. And they were ne- the titles were never seen again. And there's rumors. I, I don't know how true they are. But Mysterio and Kidman actually still had the actual titles. I know apparently the final Nitro apron's been found like somewhere in like, I'm trying to think. I think it's in Brazil or some crap. But you also have, you know, 
the final WCW ring is actually somewhere in Georgia or whatever. Like, there's it's very weird those stories about the final Nitro all around. Maybe we'll kind of double back to some of those stories further down the road. But Sting Ric Flair is your final match in the history of WCW, at least in the lineage and the canon. Before the match, Sting cuts a promo backstage surrounding himself by bats, actual baseball bats, not bats. That would have been cooler. But ton of fun to see this match between two longtime rivals. They fought again like a decade later, but you know this is the second last match they'd ever have against each other. Flair hit a low blow in clear view of Charles Robinson, and I'm like, wait, why didn't he call for the bell? Then I'm like, oh, yeah, that's Little Nate. And then I remembered when I met Charles Robinson before a SmackDown taping in 2016. So this was SmackDown at Cage Dome 2016, the last, like one of the last, first of all, WWE shows to come to the Cage Dome, probably one of the last ones ever. And this was like leading up to the Royal Rumble, yet a really cool, it was a really stacked card. This was right before they shifted over to Tuesday nights live, like the next fall. They were still taping on Tuesday nights. And I see Charles Robinson. He's he's waiting in between matches. And I just yell. I'm like three rows down on the floor. I just yell, little Nate. And he just goes into flare mode. I popped for that so hard. Like I just did it. And he just, he just was like, goes right into it. I popped for that. I'm probably the one person that did, but loved it. And I appreciate Charles Robinson for at least like noticing that kind of thing. Sting wins what was a perfectly fine match. It was just wild that the second match ever on Nitro is now the last match in the history of WCW. We get to see these two face off once again. Then we get to Nitro Ross simulcast, and basically it's a Vince McMahon essentially dancing on the grave that is WCW. And I love the fact they did that. So damn cool. And Vince basically is like thumbs up, thumbs down to all these WCW guys. Some fans like him, some fans don't. It's a very mixed crowd, if you will. And then at one point, Shane McMahon comes out in a turtleneck in Panama, Florida. Yeah, that's how he looked during spring break. It's like, come on now, couldn't you at least like look halfway like fitting the current situation, or at least look cooler? I think that's the big thing. Like you could have looked a lot cooler, to be honest with you. But this was amazing stuff from start to finish. With Vince and Shane, and then Shane says the iconic lines, I now own WCW, which means that, you know, maybe he spent some of his stimmy to go get the rights to WCW, at least in the storyline, but really just fantastic stuff. And it's a great hook to sell you on the street fight. He didn't need it, but damn, if that didn't make that match mean so much more. Before we kind of get out of here on the Cage of Dong Style podcast, I wanted to look at what happened to the wrestlers in the immediate aftermath of the death of WCW with each person that was involved in this show that was appeared on TV in some form or fashion. And I'm just going more along the lines of probably the, like a year, a year and a half tops because there's a lot of people that we can talk about with this. So we start off with the commentators. Tony Schiavone wasn't retained by WWE. He appeared in TNA in 2002 for like a cup of coffee. I think maybe 2003, disappeared from wrestling entirely until Conrad somehow managed to drag his carcass out, and he's been with AEW ever since. That's about the only one we'll kind of go with more current day because it's interesting to bring up. Scott Hudson, he was part of the infamous WCW reboot match, did the commentary. I believe this was alongside Heenan, maybe? I don't remember exactly who it was. But he called the match between – no, it was Arn Anderson. Sorry, I'll get to Arn probably in a little bit. But Buff Bagwell and Booker T wasn't around much longer, and he joined TNA in 2003. 
Meanwhile, Booker T, probably the most integral part of the invasion angle. He is actually one of the first guys that really feuded with somebody involved. Stone Cold Steve Austin feuded with him throughout, and also eventually they feuded in the aftermath of the invasion. They were a huge. He's a huge part of WWE for for WWF for a good while after that. Scott Steiner contract was too high. Let his AOL Time Warner contract expire and decided to debut at Survivor Series 2002. And I completely forgot they did actually hype this on an episode of Confidential. It wasn't until I watched some Confidential on the network that I knew that happened. Ray Mysterio, he spent some time, you know, working in Mexico, including CMLL and other indies. In fact, he had a match against Eddie Guerrero and CM Punk as a triple threat match at IWA Mid South. Very underrated. Joined the WWE in 2002. Billy Kidman, he is part of the WCW purchase. Injured after the Invasion pay per view, then kind of was used spare. He used a lot more in the cruiserweight and tag team divisions down the road with WCW. Evan Courageous, he was part of the invasion and part of the purchase, but then he suffered a severe concussion that was released in 2002. Didn't do a whole lot about that. Kaz Hayashi, bit player in the invasion, part of the WCW purchase. Obviously, his money was he was his price was too low. Then he went back to Japan by the March of 2002. Jimmy Yang was part of the purchase, went to developmental at HWA, where it was released in January 2002, then later that year joined TNA as part of the Flying Elvises. Then you get to Shane Helms, part of the Invasion storyline, part of the purchase as well, and he switched to the Hurricane gimmick during it and even won the European title for a hot minute. Chava Guerrero, part of WCW purchase, a bit play in the Invasion storyline, but was able to stick with WWE until about 2011. Chuck Palumbo, part of the Invasion angle, later was WWF champion with Billy Gunn as part of Billy and Chuck. Sean O'Hare, small part of Invasion angle, sent to OVW in September 2001. They wanted being repackaged. I believe this is in 2002. Sadly, he's since passed away. He's, probably one, he's one of the few guys that has, I mean, thankfully, has, I didn't see it thankfully, but thankfully he's one of the few that has pa- since passed on. Then we get to Lance Storm. He's actually the first member of WCW to invade WWF. Wasn't an integral part of the overall angle, but he was a huge part of it. Eventually led the Un-Americans in June 2002. But he had a huge role in it nonetheless. Mike Awesome, he won the WWF Hardcore Championship on a random Raw, injured in November 2001, the release in September of the next year. Bam Bam Bigelow did not take part in the buyout of the contract. Almost was part of NWA TNA, but the contract that he had with AOL Time Warner didn't allow them to sign him. Then we get to Sean Stasiak, an absolute gig in the invasion angle. You remember what he did in September 2001 after 9-11 show when The Rock beat him like three times, about two minutes. Absolute jabroni throughout this. I mean, this was absolute burial. He was out of the business by late 2002 after he injured his knee in November, and now he's I think he's selling real estate. Stacey Keebler, part of the invasion angle, and eventually down the road became the Duchess of Dudleyville, then we get to DDP, Sarah's Stalker. God, why did they do that? DDP was hands down one of the hottest characters they had from WCW towards the end, and they absolutely ruined him immediately. Elix Skipper, he was part of the WCW purchase, was developmental for five months, then eventually joined NWA TNA. We're seeing him at All Access Wrestling. He put together some really good matches, especially he had a two out of three falls match with AJ Styles. I think that was the last show they did. So damn good. Kid Romeo, independent circuit kind of guys, had some time in NWA TNA's early run. Not much else outside of that. Staying like contract expire, part of the world WWA's Europe tour in 2002. He didn't appear for the WWE until late 2014. Then we got to Ric Flair. 
He didn't take part in the entire invasion on the hill. He showed up the night after and announced himself as the, I'm trying to think of what he actually called it, the consortium and co-owner of the WWF, which was a great angle. And I feel like they, they let it run its course. Overall, it's really cool to kind of look back and see what happened to these guys in the immediate aftermath. Because there were so many people involved. I mean, it was only like I think 25 people they actually retained on their contracts. And like I mentioned, it was a lot of the guys that had a lot smaller of a payday and were kind of the, the minor players, if you will, in all of this. But so, so crazy, I think, 20 years ago that we got to WCW's final Nitro, the end of an era, and 20 years later we're we actually got, it took almost like, I'd say 17 years, but we finally got wrestling back on a Turner network and maybe we'll get more of that stuff down the road. But, you know, it steps in the right direction and it's really cool to see, especially seeing guys like Sting now with AEW and wrestling again. Guys like Big Show, guy who was a big part of WCW in the 90s. So cool. But that's going to about do it for the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. WrestleMania week's over. That means on Monday we're back to our regularly scheduled programming. Recapping WrestleMania 37, Nights 1 and Night 2. We're getting to all of it. So make sure you keep it locked right here. And also, make sure you subscribe to us however you do so. On whatever podcast gimmick that you have. And leave us a five-star review if you're using iTunes. Until next time, I'll talk to you later. Enjoy the wrestling.